Hey, hey, Syndication Mentoring Club. It's time for another edition of the monthly George Ross Mastermind. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to our monthly mastermind call with Mr. George Ross. George has been part of the Trump Organization for many, many years, in business for over 60 years, taught at the law school at NYU for over 20 years, the author of two best-selling books, one of the wisest men I know. Get your journals Uh out, pen and pencils ready, and we'll dive right in. Welcome, George. Yes. Go ahead. So, George, you're probably one of the few attorneys who's worked for Mr. Trump who hasn't been on television this week. <laughs> that's, that's voluntary on my part. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. So what do you make of this? I mean, you've got Mike Cohen making public statements, Rudy Giuliani, now Jay Goldberg criticizing Rudy. I mean, what am I Well, you probably, the, the thing is, it's, 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 this is a result of the, uh, the, the media as it, as it exists today and the, uh, the television and everything is everything is blown up out of out of proportion. Anybody that can get exposure will if they figure it's going to help them out. And as far as Mike Cohn is concerned, he was a lawyer in the office at that point. I I basically don't know all of the details that he did. That'll all that'll probably come out. As far as Giuliani is concerned, he's, Giuliani is always is basically structuring things. He for uh, ultimately whatever's going to happen in the investigation, if anything. And as far as Jay Goldberg is concerned, he's an old guy. He was he he's a, an old you know war horse, and he will say anything that he anything he can to get his name in television. So what you've got over here is everybody fighting for publicity. Right, right. That's what you got. I mean, it was very strange. I mean, I've met Rudy Giuliani on a number of occasions, and he strikes me as someone who comes into situations extremely well prepared. Yeah. So You know, he's very methodical. He's not one of these shoot from the hip kind of guys. So what's been going on has been fascinating, you know, to see him actually contradicting the president. Is, well, is... contradicting in certain things. He's, he's basically setting, setting what should have been said originally. And understand, that's the difference between a, a lawyer, the way he would state things, and the way a principal would state things. So what he's doing is clarifying the record. Right, and right. Uh, you know, and basically, that's... Whatever happens, happens. But that's what that's what he what he's doing to get things straight. Because what happens is this is any statement which the president makes is going to be chopped up, no matter how the how what what he says, it's going to be chopped up. Right. And they're going to interpret it. You should have said this. You should have done it sooner. You should have done it later. I don't like the words you used. The media is going to chew it up. So Giuliani's function primarily is to go on the record and to set things the way he he thinks they should be set because ultimately he's going to be involved heavily in the legal proceedings, whatever they go, whatever, wherever they go. So what you got is a lot of good television, but unfortunately we don't have a government that's operating. No kidding. It's certainly a huge distraction. The total, total distraction is nothing really to it. It's a waste of time, but so be it. I appreciate your insight. Okay. Well, this, uh, this first question comes from Michael Reimer. And... But I understand. Oh, I understand yeah. this point. Go ahead. Before before you go, I understand the media is out for one thing. Get this, get listeners, and you get yeah, listeners by coming up with news or scandalous things or something. Have you noticed on the on the television? It all you, they never give you the source. They only say the New York Times says or this says that you never get the source, so you don't know where it's coming from, if at all, and you can't get that. So it's you got to take everything that's there with with a shaker of salt, not a grain. <laughs> Yes, okay, indeed. let's go on to the next. Oh, I appreciate your insight. Thank you for that. Okay. So this first question comes from Michael Reimer, and he, uh, he unfortunately couldn't be on the call, but so I'll ask the question on his behalf. Mm-hmm. 
He has a relative who's looking to retire from a business. It's a business that actually is involved in commercial waste management or waste disposal. So, you know, dumpsters and all that kind of thing. The relative's looking to retire, wants to sell the business at a fair price. Much of the purchase price is actually for the physical assets. He's not really buying the income stream. But for, for Michael, it's not a passion project. It'll be more of a residual you know, source of income. It generates about 300000 a year in gross income, about 100000 a year net, and it's being bought for one times gross revenue, which I think is a fair price. Now, Michael's yes. question is how to set things up to operate the company successfully without, you know, really with a minimum of intervention from the owner. And I know you've had a number of side businesses. Well, you say, yeah, but let's go, let's back up, back up. Sure. You said he has a, he has a relative. You're saying the owner is a relative of Michael's? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And Michael basically is going to be doing the business. The owner, the relative, the uncle, whoever it is that is going to be, is going to phase out of the operation. Correct. So Michael's going to take okay. it over, but it's not going to be his primary source of business. That's it's fine. Side business. Okay. Okay. I would say this: that all what Michael should basically do get from is the outgoing seller some type of a short-term contract, maybe a year or two years or three years, in which they'll you know, teach Michael the business as well as any staff which Michael puts on on uh, takes on hand. So that Michael doesn't have to run the business, but at the end of uh, certainly a period of time, be it a year, two years, or whatever is involved in the business, then it should be should be able to operate without too much difficulty. So, are you thinking of maybe putting an earnout type of arrangement in place? Not an earn, no, no, not an earnout. Just that okay. I would have, which is very often when the business is sold, the owner is uh, takes on a, a a contract for a period of years where he will perform services and gets paid for it. I see. Over the period of time, and he'll he will basically run the business for what you might call a startup period or a period of time long enough to permit the new owner to get his to understand everything is going on and to put a staff in place. This is not unusual. Right, right. So some transitional services agreement where he's providing some uh, contract leadership. That's correct. Well, he's going to basically run the business. He gets paid and runs the business now. And if, if from what you're saying, you're saying that you get about a hundred thousand net, so there's room to pay this guy some kind of a salary in the interim basis while he's doing the, you know, getting getting the new Michael involved. Right, and some of that hundred thousand would obviously go towards servicing some debt to purchase for that three hundred thousand, but there's, Whatever, more, than there's yeah. more than enough. Yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an atypical transaction. It's typical where you have a business which is basically run or controlled. By one party, and then the, if somebody new comes in, that party has to help the new party ha- handle the, the the business and teach him what what goes on, so that he doesn't make any horrendous mistakes. That's typical, not atypical. Right now, would you have any concerns that a three hundred thousand a year the business is too small to be sustainable? Should he look at amalgamating with something else to try and make yeah, it more sustainable? That, that, that. No, I don't see anything problem with that. You know, it's not depending on the nature of the the business. What does it require in the way of his time? You know, how much supervision does it need in order to maintain its uh, the the cash flow and make a hundred thousand? If the answer is quite a bit, then it's not a good deal. If the answer is very little, then it is a good deal. And from what the nature of the business is saying, it doesn't seem to me to be too complex, and therefore you can probably do it with a minimal staff. That would be my reading of it, but I could be dead wrong. I just don't have enough information. Right. No, I think your reading of it is the same as mine. Well, then it's, then it's fine. It's a nice little business. Yeah, I think He's so. Not, over, not overpaying for it, and then there's nothing wrong with passive income. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's a good move, even if it's not, you know, a passion project or anything like that. It, it could be. It doesn't a, have to be, but these are good. You never, you know, it's fine. You know, side deals are good. It's uh, as long as they make money. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Okay. Next question is from Dave Zook. Dave, are you on the line? I am. Dave? Can you hear me? Okay. Good. Perfect. I can hear you fine, Dave. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, George, for joining us again or for making yourself available. I The question is, I talked to an investor this week and he gave me an example of what happened to him. And he was an investor in Flint, Michigan. He had a loan on several big, several, you know, good sized projects. I think his, his loan was around 900,000 with the bank and it was, it was a fixed loan. It wasn't like a, an open line of credit situation, but the bank called the note. They weren't in default. They were making their monthly payments. Uh, everything well, called was the note. They, they call, the bank, I assume, called the note because it's just due. No, they called the note because its values dropped on his property. Oh, so, words, so they're saying that they, they're not happy anymore with the ratio of, of uh, loan yes. to value. Yeah, <laughs> so they called the note. And this was back, well, yeah, but, this but, was back in 2009 the, and 10. Yeah, but where is it? What, what, what does the mortgage say? The mortgage, well, does the mortgage that, require a certain length to value ratio, or is it just the bank figuring they were unhappy? You know what? That's a great question. I, I would I would assume it was probably in the mortgage that had you know that that had that in it. But I guess my question is, well, I had that happen. I had that conversation with one other. It was a mentor of mine who you know this was a bigger loan. This was mm-hmm. you know three hundred three hundred million dollars where the bank did the same thing. They called the note and he said, well, you can't call the note. I'm making the payments. We're not in default. And he said, well, did you look at the 300 page thing that you signed? You're in default somewhere okay. and you're going to have to come up with the money. So my question is, what are the risks? You know, I mean, we're getting ready to sign on some, some loans, some recourse. The risk at that point some, is, the risk is that. understand this. I would I basically, the lender at that point, I would, would go after the lender and I wouldn't just give in. I think at that point, the lender's, lender's got a weak position and the, and the court, so, court basically is, is reluctant to foreclose when the payments are in fact being made and foreclose on a technicality. So I would, as far as this is concerned, I would just tell, basically tell the lender, well, uh, do what you want, but I'm going to fight you. You can't take, but you can't take the property. I've been making all the payments. That just give me, give me an opportunity to replace the loan or, you know, for a period of time. And if you don't at that point, you know, you'll take your best shot. They don't want to foreclose. That's a threat, but they don't want to do it. And the courts are very, very tenant or, uh, you know, borrower oriented, especially in Flint, Michigan. Okay. You know, so in our like situation, the idea, they don't like the idea of lenders arbitrarily calling in a loan. Okay. So typically, like like in our situation, where we're, where we're getting ready to build and we're signing on the node and we get into a situation where we now have a, a property that's stabilized, but now our values drop because of something that was out of our control. Yeah. You're thinking mm-hmm. the courts would rule in our favor. Yes. First of all, that's because you rule in your favor. I don't see the, the, when push comes to the shove, I don't see the lender pushing it. They can threaten it, but I don't see that they're going to carry it to the extreme. Foreclosures are very expensive and they usually take a period of years. Okay. And you can you get all kinds of all kinds of defenses that the bank should, that the lender should not be doing it. You're making the payments. It's a it's a hardship, and you haven't got the money. You could come up with all kinds of defenses, and the the courts generally are lean in favor of the borrower, not the lender. Okay. Especially here, the lender at that point is getting paid. If the lender weren't getting paid, that's a it could be a different story. But either they're getting paid, and they're saying, oh yeah, yeah. but I don't like the I don't like the ratio of the. Uh, the value of the property to the loan. And under the terms of the agreement, I have the right to call it as a result of that. That's a technicality. Okay. And, uh, you no, know, it's it's, the, the, the courts, are, the courts are, 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 have a tendency to lean definitely in favor of the borrower. 
if you're making the payment. That's good to know because I look back at some of the documents that I signed, some of the stacks of documents. Well, you go to hey, hey, some of these properties. Truth is, if a lender wants to fork, wants to call a loan, he can. For all kinds of reasons. Yeah. He doesn't like the creditor to borrow it. It changes. Them. They can. So that then the papers that you sign with all the with with everything that's there, you know, that's typical. That's what you would sign. But that would that works in the favor of the borrower in the event that the lender tries to push too hard. Yeah. Okay. So good. So Dave, that's good Dave, enough. Thank you. So Dave, a yeah, quick question yeah. here. Was so was that loan that was called an insured loan either with HUD or with one of the agencies like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? No. It was with a local lender. And the only reason they were calling the loan is because the value dropped so drastically. It went from being valued at nine hundred thousand, I think, dropping to like five hundred thousand or something like that. I mean it was it was a you know, it was it was over, you know, from two thousand five to two thousand ten. Yeah. It was that time period. Yeah, well you can kinda of, especially in Flint, Michigan, my God, at that point the court, you know, there's so much going on there that the courts are, the, the judges are very responsive to do not having anything is going to drive a small business into, into bankruptcy or uh, yeah. call in loans. So in this yeah. instance, without in a nice way, I'd say, hey, you know, fellas, look, I'm I'm willing to do what's necessary to be done, but you, the, the loan is still getting paid. When the loan's not paid, speak to me. Meanwhile, don't call it on a technicality. Now, in this particular okay. case, in, in, in these future loans that were that Dave is talking about where we're contemplating having, you know, HUD backing the chances of that loan getting called, I would imagine would drop significantly. Because, because you got HUD behind it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. That's different. If you got a federal agency or a Spanning May or something that's guaranteeing a loan, that's a whole different story. Then they're not, but you know what happened? They won't call it. Let yeah. want to get paid. They're only concerned in getting paid. How do I get my money back? If they get their money back, they're satisfied. If they don't get their money back, they're not satisfied. But this one that you have is just a, technica a technicality. It says, hey, the truth is I don't like the loan anymore. I'd like to get out of it. But that doesn't mean because it's not being paid. It's just that I think that the, that the loan is too high for the value of the property. But that's yeah. not unusual. You know, and properties yeah, and increase in value. Yeah, and the conversation that I had with, with this guy was like, you're probably lucky that that happened because you'd still be paying for that uh, property that wouldn't be worth what what you know what, what it was back in 2006. You know, I was looking forward thinking, man, what if we get into a situation even with a local lender on a bigger project and they decided, you know, we were going to call the loan. I understand. No, no. Getting back now. Dealing with bankers, bankers are not business people. They're bankers. All they want to know is how do I get my money back? If yep. they were business people, they would be in business. They they own real estate. They'd not be making loans on it, and they're the worst. But you can play game. You can take them to the wall, and they'll back off. Long, okay. long ways on that. Now, because let's say what happens. Suppose they call a the loan, and the property goes on foreclosure. How much are they going to get in foreclosure? Pennies on a dollar. So at that point, maybe maybe you buy it in. At the reduced price, they're not going yep. to get their value. So it's yep. it's, it's be, be, before they it's a long ways away before they take that route and really enforce it and really go for it. This is just a uh, a situation where yeah they'd like to get out of it. That's nice, and it's a loan was made at an earlier point in time when the values were high. But as long as it's being paid, they got a weak position. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. I should have, I should have a hair on my head for every loan that the client had that went into foreclosure or, or, the, or the lender tried to make all kinds of gestures.
So you're think so 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 in your experience, just because they sent out the letter saying you're gonna come up with the money in sixty days, that that was not the end of the story. And and in most cases yeah, they didn't, only they the weren't only able to call the, letter. the story. Only the beginning of the story. Yeah, they would like more assets, they would like this, maybe they like personal guarantees, maybe they say, Well, come up and give me two hundred thousand in cash as additional security. Yeah, that's what they're playing. They're, they, that's what they would like. That doesn't mean that they're going to get it. That's a that's right. the first shot to see what happens. I would give them okay. back and uh, basically and tell them, look, drop dead nasty letter will follow. Yep. Okay. Good. That's awesome. Great question, Dave. Okay. This next question is from Matthew and Patrick. Matt, are you on the line? Yeah, Victor, I'm here. All right, go ahead. Yeah, Victor, I'm here. Who we got, Matt or Patrick? Matt is here. Matt. Yeah, Matt here. Okay. Fortunately, Patrick couldn't make it tonight. He had to work. <laughs> so, so the question we have is we're looking at buying a 5.6 acre parcel and there's a weird encumbrance on title. It's the seller has put an encumbrance on the title. However, the family owns the parcel for the last several generations. They own a lot of land in the area that we're looking and they're notorious for being difficult to deal with. After doing some due diligence, we found that these titles were on, on there. The first one is from 95. And it's actually from the seller to purchase the property. The second one is a freight first, is a first right of refusal registered on title again from the seller. It seems like it's a way for the seller to default on the sale with no consequence. In your experience, what does well, wait, the wait, offer? Wait, wait, back, back off, back off, back off here a minute. Who is the seller? The seller that owns the property or the seller has like, got some kind of a contract to buy it if he wants to? Okay, so <clears throat> it's a numbered company that owns the property. Yep. Is the seller? They're the seller. Now, okay. and they're the, the, they're the would, seller, and you yeah, you seller, would be yes. will you be buying directly from them? Yes. At a price that would be agreed upon. Yes. Okay. The only problem is is there somebody else that has a right of first refusal. The seller's son. Okay. The seller's son has a right of first refusal, so he has a right of first refusal, which he put on at that point, so that he can he can match the price that you want to pay. Right. We're, we're we're assuming that's why we're, we don't know why he would have put that on there. Well, he who the son? It's a great the deal son, for yeah. the son. Well, you, okay, it's a great deal. You're tying up a piece of property with no money. Technically, yeah, but it, it's in his whole family. Technically, like he's part of that company that's got the number. I understand. Of the company. I, but meanwhile, he's got an edge. What he's what he got basically is look, assume now that you went and you you put a contract, you've got a contract, a legitimate contract to buy the property at an agreed price. Now. The son at this point can say, look, hey, I'm going to exercise my right of, of first refusal or I'm not going to kill the deal unless you come up and pay me some money. That's the position. He's got a blackmail position, not necessarily something that he wants. Okay. And his position, his position is good, but it's a, it's a Jesse James uh, shot, not a real owner shot. If he wanted it, he would, he would make arrangements to buy it directly from his uh, relatives. Okay. Now, is there a way we can still protect ourselves from that? Yeah. Yeah. Protect yourself at that point. Make a contract. You make the contract with the seller. If the if the the son exercised the right of first refusal, you get a penalty. You get some money for the privilege okay. of stepping up to the plate. Okay. It's not unusual. Now, now, what about trying to get the first rate the rate of first removal removed from title? Well, not this. If you can't get the right of first refusal, if you you get the answer, then you got to talk to the son. Okay. All right. And the son's going to say, why should he remove the right of first refusal unless he gets something? So you're back to square one at that point with having say, blackmailing you to give up the right of first refusal, which he really doesn't want to exercise. Okay. 
I guess that's a be- I guess that is the best way. We we had that in mind thinking we either yeah, go back or- go back. I don't know at this point, but assuming now dude, you talk to me generally, at the assume you go through what's the purchase price for the property you're looking to buy? Ten Dollars. million. Ten million. Good. Okay. Yeah, and you're gonna put up a down payment of what, a hundred grand? Approximately, yes. Okay, or well, hundred grand, two hundred, something like that, which is gonna be held in escrow, yep. assuming the deal goes through, right? Gonna yep. be held in escrow. All right, fine. So that you provide at this point with this with the seller that you have that in the event that this that the son exercises the right of first refusal at that point, you get back not only you get back your deposit double or a hundred thousand more. Okay. Because the owner basically control should control the son. Yes. Now can he excite can he use that rate of first refusal after the conditional period? Yeah, one can we start, I don't know what the rate of first refusal says. No. Okay. If we I don't know what the right why do, I, you'd have to see the terms of the right of first refusal. Usually the first refusal disappears when you have a legitimate offer. Okay. And a contract. It doesn't continue on. See, that's what I was worried about is it maybe possibly continuing on. So when we start doing our, our surveys and whatnot and start spending money, next thing you know he he cuts it. But yeah, but you can put the all of that you can put in a contract with the seller. Okay. Just say, is that happen? If your son at that point decides he wants to be Jesse James and hold the thing up, I get back uh, X number of dollars as a penalty plus whatever expenses I put in because he he now is exercising the right of first refusal. You can do that. Okay. And what will happen is you'll shake loose, you'll shake the, the son and little and the seller apart. Yeah. Which is good. Exactly. That's what will happen. Yeah, that's what we but, want to do. Yeah, but don't deal with the with the sun. That's a waste okay. of time. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Thank well, you. Well, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. You no. got a lot of you know the the right of putting putting a right of first refusal on a property is a stupid thing to do. Uh, yeah, for any owner. He's been somewhat notorious in that area for doing things of that nature. Or you know, if you, you approach him about a piece of land that's not for sale, he'll listen to your offer, then counter with some insane number and see if yeah. he gets it. Like he's he's a yeah. he's a Strange person, I think, that way. Yeah. No, uh, the, the right of first refusal is not an unusual situation in a, uh, where you have, we have contracts at this point where uh, somebody sells the price, you know, sells it and says, okay, I still have the right of first refusal. I got, if you want to resell it at a higher price at that point, I can come back and, and back out, you know, get to, wants to know that he's not, you're not making an unnecessary profit on the sale of the property. But generally speaking, you don't see too many of the right of first refusal. And they're, they're they're good for the guy who got it, not for the guy who gave it. Okay. Well, thank you. That's what, uh, that's, what we'll, that's what we'll do. Great. What's next? Okay, next. So, George, this is one from our business where we recently, actually just this week, received zoning approval for a new medical office building in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. We talked about this before, didn't we? We did. We did. We, we yeah, actually okay. just got our zoning this week. Okay. And we've got several groups expressing interest in leasing space in the building. And yep. once it's complete, on you know, the interior is going to be a blank shell. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a couple of tenants. Who wanting, builds it out? I'm sorry? Who builds it out? Who builds out the interior? Well, we're going to provide a budget for tenant improvements. So okay. let's say $40 a square foot for TI okay. and anything above right. that they'll pay. Okay. Right? Fine. Now, we've got a bunch of prospective tenants looking to discuss interior design with our architect, which on one level we're fine with. We haven't really put a process in place for qualifying the tenants or even ensuring the tenants serious enough to warrant spending money with the architect prior to having a written commitment. So, Well, why did you have a written commitment? Why can't you get a written commitment? Yeah, we're not at that stage yet. So the question is, what kind of... What kind of process? What do you do? If you're not if you're not at the stage, what then why are you, everything else is that is a big maybe? 
Why right. can't you be at the stage if you want to test somebody to see whether or not they're serious? Get a signed a signed commitment that yeah they'll take the they'll take the property, they'll lease lease it out when it's when it's complete. No, that's typical. To do it on a maybe is uh, becomes hazardous at best. I guess my question uh-huh. is: so in the early stages of a conversation with a prospective tenant, how right. can you ask for a commitment, or you know, what stages would you take that tenant through? Maybe a memorandum of understanding or something. Well, not a memorandum of understanding. First, you got to get the deal. Okay. In other words, once he says, just assuming now that you have the tenant and the tenant's ready to do it, then what's the problem getting a firm commitment? And the firm commitment is this well, you have the right to buy back out of the firm commitment in the event that you're not satisfied with his, uh, with his financial history or his, his doing business stuff. So you're not going to make a credit check, which a, a lender or a bank can do that right. you got to be satisfied with or otherwise you can back out. But he can't back out. So he's now at that point says, okay, yeah, you build it, I'll buy it, uh, and I'll rent it. And here's what I rent it at, and you give me 40 bucks a square foot to build it out, anything over I will pay. That's a signed, a signed a binding agreement. That's where you start. That's the appropriate place. And how early in the conversation with the tenant would you put those right terms now. in front of them? Right at the beginning? Right now. Okay. Yeah, right now. Right now, you do it at this point. And he can, the tenant, you can, tenant can ask for all kinds of things. Well, if you're not built, if you're not built by a certain period of time, I have the right to back out. So that you, but you're, you're going to agree in the agreement that you have that you will build it at a certain, and you'll be, have it ready for delivery by a certain date. That would be part of the agreement. If you, if you, that happens, then the tenant, the tenant's bound. If it's not, he may have the right to get out in the event that you uh, you don't build it at all or you don't build it on a timely basis. That's all part of a firm agreement. In other words, an agreement to lease when the, when the thing is complete. And that's the typical. That's usual. So I don't know why you would, would go do something different. In other yeah. words, you take, go, back, go back a step. Yep. Say, this one, I'm building a house. All right. I can show you the model. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, I like the model. Yes. All right, we'll sign a contract that I will build that house in the model and you will buy it on the terms. Why is that any different? Because it, it happens to be a, a, a lab. It's the same thing, same concept. Yes, it is It is the same concept. But? I think the only thing we haven't done yet is we haven't specified clearly enough what they will be getting in that blank shell, what's included and what's not in order to have Well, you give it 40 bucks a foot. Right. Yeah. But you should be able to do. You should be able to bid out or find out what the what the finishes are in the forty dollars a foot. What the the flooring is going to look like. What the carpeting is going to look like. What painting. The whole bit. All of that. Yes. So you should have specifications. Say, hey, this is the building standard. Anything above building standard is you pay for it. Correct. Correct. That's and they the can look at the building done. standard and say it's worth forty bucks a foot, or it's not worth forty bucks a foot, or whatever. I mean, but that's the same in. If you had a, a house, you know, you told the the builder tells you what you're getting. Tells you're getting this appliance, that appliance. You're getting carpeting, or you're getting flooring, or whatever. Puts down all the, the specs of what you're going to get for uh, for what you're paying. So and the, to the extent that you want the, the extent that you want to do an extra, or you want to vary, you you take the money and you you do what you want. Right. So it sounds like we're almost engaging the tenants a little too soon in the process because we haven't completed enough of that design work ourselves. Correct. Correct. You have it basically priced out the forty dollars a square foot. That you say, how how close is it to what what the guy really needs? Can he is forty dollars a square foot good? 
So he says, okay, I can live with it, or is it really need $100 a square foot, and your 40 doesn't cover it. Right. In which case, there'll be further discussion. Now, prior yeah, to breaking ground on premature. the building. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So prior to breaking ground on the building, we'll definitely want to have firm commitments on enough of the square footage so that we, we're confident that it's going to get leased up. Right. Apart from getting a signed lease, what kind of financial commitment do you think we should be extracting up front from the tenants? How much cash should we be? Well, asking? I wouldn't. I yeah, you, but the, the, you, you're really putting you, you're throwing another wrinkle in it okay. at an early stage, which is unnecessary at this point. So I would say in the agreement to buy, it's uh, assuming you have the right out if he doesn't meet the financial requirements. Mm-hmm. But that's after the signed contract. I see. So then you can put in whatever you want. You're going to go to bank, but don't detail it. You're liable to scare the hell out of them. At that point, if you make it too difficult, say, I'll never pass it. Right, right. So it's just subject to your approval or subject to your reasonable approval. Okay, that makes sense. Which, you know, which doesn't sound uh, onerous at that, but when the time comes that they're ready to sign a contract or are signing a contract, then they can ask you, good, what do you have? What is this? What is involved? What's... But generally speaking, they won't. Because they'll assume at that point that you they'll pass the they'll pass the credit because if they didn't pass it you could you can't fill contract right right yeah so I, I mean make it make it onerous or or any anything that indicates how many how how much assets and what how much net worth well no don't do that okay don't act as a bank right right okay that makes sense okay okay next question is from Carolyn Matthews uh, CJ are you on the line. You can press star six to unmute if you're on the phone. Okay, I don't hear her, so I'll, I'll ask the question on her behalf. So she has a smaller residential assisted living home that she's looking to build out. Now they already own the property and they had a funding source lined up for the construction who was actually looking to place a minimum of $5 million, which was much larger than they needed. Mm-hmm. So, so what they did is they bundled this along with seven other properties and refied the seven properties in addition to the one that they're looking to build out as a package. And the funding source said, yes, I like that, ready to go. And then the funding source went quiet. And it turns out that the principal had a heart attack. So they're clearly back in the hunt for capital with no plan B and perhaps on a compressed timeline. And they've run into this sort of thing before. So this is really more of a generic question for probably most people on the call. And there's really two questions. The first is, when you're looking to raise money, would you recommend that they engage with a single investor or rather syndicate with multiple investors? And then the second question is, how many backup plans should they have in place? Well, that's that's, that's, like, that's the first part. I would, as against a single investor, as against multiple investors, I would go for multiple investors because now we have multiple investors. One single investor dropping out is not totally hazardous. You may be able to cover them, or some of the other investors can will take up the slack. When you have a single investor and it's a person, not a bank or a, a lender with with tremendous assets, you got the risk at that point that that's, that that party is going to show up when the time comes to close. That's the nature of the business. I can't tell you not to take it, but that's a, that's the risk you take. And then if it falls apart at the wrong time, you're going to have a problem at that point replacing it because your your time is out of whack. Now, what you can have a, basically is, is early at that point when you have it. What's the matter with a letter of credit? Get the get the investor to put up a letter of credit. Huh, interesting. So let yeah. the investor at that point, while they're solvent or it's still alive anyway. They can now go to the bank and get a letter of credit where the bank says, okay, 
you build it and we'll pay it. So they basically backed up the credit so that you don't have to worry about the investor not being there when you need them. And letter credits are not overly expensive, provided the whoever is putting it up has, a, has the assets which, which can cover the amount of letter of credit. If it's a good investor and good solvent investor at that point, you should have no real problem getting a letter of credit from a bank. Mm-hmm. That's a very good suggestion. That's a very okay. good, really good suggestion. Yeah. And uh, now, also, many, you're carrying yeah. that one step further at that point. It's not necessary that the letter of credit be for the full amount that the guy's going to put up. It could be for half or whatever. But, so that would reduce the exposure. In other words, instead of having to replace somebody for $5 million, if you had to replace it for $2.5 million, it could be a lot easier because you already got 2 and a half. Oh, I see. So it does, it, it's, it's, there's, there's some flexibility there. And mm-hmm. also, if you've got a new investor coming in and you say, look, I had somebody who came in and said he was going to go for $5 million, at this, he dropped out, but it got two. But so I'm now he gave, got two and a half. So you only have to put up two and a half, and you get the same advantage of the five. The other two and a half is already put up. So the the letter of credit or the the becomes the second investor or the group of investors you're looking for in the first instance. Interesting. Well, that's a very neat idea. Okay. Very very good. I hadn't I hadn't even thought of that. And well, uh, that's why I, I I try to come up with new ideas. Go ahead. <laughs> that's fantastic. To me, they're not new. No, I understand. Good. And so then I guess the, the the second part of the question is how many backup plans should uh, Carolyn have in place? You don't have preference. You shouldn't have any. If you have one, fine. But you're going to pay for the backup plan. If right. you don't pay for it, that's one thing. If you pay for it, it's good. It's like you're buying insurance. But if you've got the right borrower or the or borrower is solid and is a bank at that point, you don't need a backup plan. It's like you know, like saying how much if, if uh, how much insurance would you carry on your life if you're going to live? Don't carry insurance. Right. All right. Very good. So can't, can't come up with any kind of a number on that. That's a risk that you yeah, take yeah. if you know who your bar, who your lender is. Okay. Next question is from Vince Fiacco. Vince, are you on the line? Hi, Victor. Go ahead, Vince. Hello, Victor. Hey, hey Vince. Hi. How are you, sir? I'm good. What's up? Hey, quick question. Well, uh, you've been around for a while. How do you? How well, do you I've been around for a lot more than a while. <laughs> how do you be a top performer in all areas and have balance in life as well? What what have you found to be the most effective way to go about this? Okay, that's a good. It's a very good question, uh, and the, the question is very simple: is is balance? You know, you have to figure out some type of a game plan. What yeah. do you want in life? And usually boils down to two things, or uh, they're not two individual items, but it's a, a, a composite idea. One is money or wealth. How much do you need or how much do you want in order to maintain the lifestyle which you'd like to have or you're comfortable with? And that's a finite number, but you have to put it down. So you have to say, good, what are my, what are my expenses? Over this, in order for me to, to live the lifestyle I want, I need X, X number of dollars a year. All right? And you see how much you got of that X dollars. If you haven't got it at this point, and then, you, then the problem is, I have to change my lifestyle because I haven't got enough money to support that lifestyle, so, which means I have to create the income. In the interim, I got to change the life, change the idea for the lifestyle. So the lifestyle is not owned by any means. It's just your idea of what you what you need or you would be satisfied with at a certain point in time, and that's whatever you want, what you have in mind. In other words, you can have a huge house or the state and mansions. You can have 18 cars, whatever floats your boat. But be smart enough to put it down and write up the number. I write it up every year. You should too. That's mm-hmm. the first end. That, that's the part. So instead of mm-hmm. saying, 
I know what I need or I need, I could live with $8 million, $10 million, $20 million, $50 million, whatever it is. Figure out what you really need and what you're going to get, what you, wh- where you are as to where you want to be. And you do that, if you do that on an annual basis, you'll, you'll, you'll have some feeling that I am there or I'm not there, how far you are from whatever goal, whatever goal you want to achieve. That's the half part. The other part is more important, and that's balancing it with your time, with your family, with your friends, with the community, with charities or whatever it is, the happy, the fun that you're going to have or that makes life worthwhile while you, you have the money to do what you want to do, but you also have the things that, that you feel are important. And that's, again, you have to make up your own mind. How important is it? How important is it for you to be charitable or give money to charities or to, or to spend time with your children or your grandchildren or to go on vacations? And, you know, we figure it out and then work it out so that you can live that lifestyle. Not easy. But it's I not had, easy, right? No, no. But early on, I had said to said, I will never work after 5.30 in the evening because I want to go home. I want to see my children. I want to watch them grow up. I want to spend time with my wife. So mm-hmm. that became my lifestyle, and I wouldn't. So essentially, really, so essentially you you time blocked that out. Yeah, professionally, I said, look, this is my lifestyle. I come in early in the morning, but I'm not working after five thirty. And I would have it with the with the clients in my law firm. They would just understand it. If there was an emergency, yes, I would handle it, but only in the event of emergency. And there are very few emergencies that have a time frame that has to be done immediately. But once you say I got to do it, you let the client pick the time and how hard you're going to work in the hours. Hey, you're you're a slave. You're making a lot of money, but you're a slave. And I just chose not to be a slave. Mm-hmm. And maybe you know, ha- happy at this point that I had had balance, that I had time to do whatever it is that I wanted to do. I could do sports. I could do vacations, because I adapted my lifestyle that. But I had to give up the fact that I'm going to be making less money than I could make if I really wanted to make more money, but I didn't want to make more money. It was of no value to me. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of soul searching and uh, writing things down and, and putting putting paper to it. You'd be surprised what it would be. If I said to you now, how many dollars do you need now to live the lifestyle you want on an annual basis? I don't think you could probably give me the answer if you haven't put paper, we haven't put a pencil to paper. Yeah. I mean, you, you ask your expenses and, and what you need to live and you know, what your goals are, you break that Correct. down. Correct. And that has to be at this point. Yeah, I want to buy a certain amount of insurance to protect my family. I want to have a nice car or whatever, whatever it is. I want to take a certain number of vacations and there's a cost for that. So you now put down all of those things that what you would need what you, what to live the lifestyle you want. This is how much you would need in the way of income. Then you figure out what your what your actual income is. Are you there or how far are you away? And in the interim, if you're not there, and you say, well, okay, I'll have a, have, I can't maintain that lifestyle now, but ultimately it would. So I have to figure out I'm going to need another million dollars a year or two billion or whatever it is in order to be there. But I find that most people don't even do it. They just say, I need more money. I need more money, but they don't know how much. And when you, when you get it, you're not satisfied. It's never enough. It was not never enough because you never planned. In other words, you never put the pencil to the paper and say, hey, if I got this, this is I'm satisfied. I early, really, fairly early on, because of the background, I was really poor. I mean, when I got married, I had $13 in the bank. And mm-hmm. I said at this point, I will never be poor again. I'm not, we, not poor that we didn't have stuff to eat. My father was a traveling salesman, and he provided as best he could. 
but never had the ability to make investments and go or go to movies or whatever it is. Just didn't had to do it. So I said, I'm not going to be there again. And then when I got married, I said, my wife, look, over this, I will work my tail off to see that you're adequately protected. I'll get you the necessary amount of insurance and we'll eventually buy a house. We'll do all of this, but you got to have faith that it's going to be. And yeah, make, made it made it happen. But yeah. when I went for a house at this the first house was nineteen thousand nine ninety because I couldn't afford more. Mm-hmm. So and then yeah, little, so little little it, standard. And, yeah, yeah, that's all. But bought insurance and this uh, so the kids could go to a nice school and ultimately went to college. And later on, at that point, I could send my my grandchildren to to, to college, one of them to medical school. But that was different because now we, you know, it's forty fifty years later. At that, yeah, and you're making more income and you've made investments, and then it turned out that you have you have the money to do what you want to do at a certain point in time where you didn't have that early on. But this is personal. It's personal for each individual, each person. You have to figure out the balance, what it is that you, 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 what you're satisfied with. Whatever Absolutely. Everybody has their own goal, right? That's correct. And their own goal and whatever makes them happy. Yep. So what makes you happy, fine. But just be realistic. Okay. That's awesome. Thank, thank you. Okay. Thank you, George. So much for philosophy. <laughs> All right, we've got uh, three more questions here. We'll try and uh, get through them all here. So next, Go we've got uh, Mike Ayala. Mike, are you on the line? Yeah, Victor, I'm here. Go ahead. Hey, George, thanks for taking the time with us. Yeah, when we were pleasure. in, yeah, when we were in Dallas at the Real Estate Guys Syndication yeah. event, you mentioned yeah. that you should never do a long-term project with short-term money. In our business, we're buying distressed assets, and many times it is with short-term money, uh, meaning so, you know one to one to two years, generally two years. But that's in, not long-term. That's, okay. That's not long-term. When I said that at that point, I'm talking long-term much more than that. Long-term okay. to me is five to 10 years more for that. That's long-term. What you got now is short-term. So the how project long are you funding is- it? Yeah, because you're out, you're out of it in, in two years. You're not keeping uh, it. And, and just, just to clarify, I mean, we're not, we're not selling the project in two years per se. We could, but in general, it's the, the, the goal is to refinance. That's good. Then when you refinance at that point, it has cash flow and you're going to be satisfied to keep it, you keep it as, a, as, an asset, as a working asset. Great. Perfect. That's right. <laughs> easy enough. No, it's easy enough. But, but the, 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 the key really is to have enough, in, enough of financing to reach the goal that you want to reach within the time frame that's realistic to, in, to reach it. So if you figure good, I, I should be out of this in two years. Get yourself enough money for four. Okay. In case you made a mistake or it didn't can, work out the way you had in mind. Great. Don't great get advice. enough money for two. Okay. Can, can you we'll expand? Figure, figure, I'll cover the difference. That's, that's what we're talking about. Okay. Can you expand okay. a little bit on what the thought process was, you know, a, a, a long-term project with short-term money? Can you give me an example? Yeah. Uh, can you give you an example? Sure. Bob example is a builder by the name of Bill Zeckendorf. It was one of the very, very big builders built a lot up in Canada at this point. Right? He decided that this, he, he decided that he was going to build a hotel without without getting a mortgage loan. And he had like nine million dollars, so he figured that would be I'd be I would be able to get a mortgage loan. But he didn't get the mortgage loan. So his nine million ran out at that point and he lost the property. Great. It was great That's, not for uh, him. Yeah, yeah, that that brings clarity to my, to my question, so I appreciate. Yeah. That. Okay. Very good. Okay. What's next? Next question is from Randy Hubs. Randy, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, go ahead, Randy. Great. Hey, George. Our, our main focus is hey. Our main focus has been in the uh, multifamily B 
C-class space, but over the past year and a half or so, deals have been more and more difficult to find due to increased demand. We also heard people like Ken McElroy mentioning more, you know, and more recently, Robert Kiyosaki saying that they're sitting on the sidelines and not actively pursuing the Saxat class right now. The, on, on the other hand, I'm hearing others that, that seem to be excited that they recently closed on similar investments of this type at, like you say, a 6% cap rate, which appears to sound, you know, to me, sounds pretty risky because of the potential for further cap rate compression as well as predicted rising interest rates. So, you know, Mr. Ross, and you're, you've obviously been around, around the block and, yeah, and yeah, gone yeah. through many. You've done that, new, right. Yeah. So, and, and so you've seen all these real estate cycles, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this and what your experience has taught you from the other, perhaps, some cycles. Sure, but you can't. But first of all, let's not just talk. There were cycles, and there were cycles, but there and there were assets and assets. So it really depends on the nature of the asset. The nature of the asset. If we're talking about residential properties, residential realty, it will have, traditionally it's going to appreciate in value over a period of time. Very simple because it's going to cost more to build new than it is to build something that's already built. So if you build something at that point, understand if you wanted to do it again in five years, it's going to cost more than it did originally. So that's an advantage, coupled with the fact that people have to have a place to live. So as a result of that, that that's, a, that's a pretty solid type of investment. I don't care what the Kawasaki or what have you said. For a builder at this point, it's a great. And you're in, you're in a tight market, that's great. So you end up uh, making a 6% return or a 5% return, but over a period of time, it's going to be a lot more because the asset is going to appreciate in value. So I wouldn't be to listen to somebody who's down every a lot of people do that. And th- and that's psychological. When you when you say it's uh sitting on the sidelines or uh, for a particular it depends on the asset, it depends on where it's located, it depends uh, when you're talking now about the B or C classification, that, that that's that's an arbitrary classification. If it's residential real estate in an area that's that's a good area, I, I over a period of time it's gonna go up in value. It's as simple as that. This is not the same for commercial. Shopping centers also or strip strip malls, whole different ballgame because that requires a tenant to pay the rent. People always will be able to pay the rent to where they live. That's that interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I've never separated the two classes out quite that same way, but yeah, appreciate it. Well, it's that. not classes. It's also, it also is where. It's area. You know I mean? They say, mm-hmm. for example, it's a, there are areas in Dallas which are red hot, and there are areas that you couldn't couldn't give away. But that's in any city, so it's not. You can't say, well, is is it good? Is is it good in good the market? Good in it may be good in certain types of properties in certain areas, and not good in other areas. Real estate is unique in that it's in a specific site at a specific time, and it could be good or bad at that time or changeable. But that's the nature of the business. All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. What do we got? We got any more? Or are we through? One last question. So Go this ahead. one's from my business where we're looking to build 45 new homes in two residential subdivisions in Asheville, North Carolina. Yep. And the local brokers are telling me that in North Carolina, we have to disclose the method of construction on the MLS list. Sure. Fine. We've done our homework and come to the conclusion that we can build the same house in a factory for 25% less than if we stick build on site. And we're not talking mobile homes. So I know there's a stigma against modular construction. No, there's not a stigma against mine. That's nonsense. Okay. Who tells you there's a stigma in modular construction? 
the only stigma you'd find with modular construction is if you're building mansions. Okay. So we're if you're I mean, building we're, a, a typical the typical one family house, maybe a maximum of thirty five hundred square feet, big deal. Okay. Could be modular all you want. That's what my gut's been telling me, and uh, you know, I've been trying to decide whether to stick to my what I think is my knowledge that the finished product is going to be superior in quality. But understand, it's, yes, but the finished product is this. Also, understand that when you make the arrangements, who's ever yeah. building out in the factory at that point, yeah. you can get all kinds of warranties and guarantees from the factory that you 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 couldn't get from the builder if if the builder was was building it himself. That's true. So you may be able to get a five-year guarantee instead of a two-year guarantee or one-year or guarantee workmanship. So there are advantages because you got better construction. Now, if the if you can show the sales factor on the, uh, the, the modular construction is the factory, they must have homes that they have built, uh, that, that have been built with their product in various places. So all you need is a good brochure showing this and, and some testimonials from the people that are there. Yes, it's great. And generally speaking, uh, you can, they can do better because they do more of it. It's standardized, whereas yep. a builder isn't standardized. So there are advantages. But the mobile homes, forget it. There's no, It's not a mobile home. No, and no. That's, uh, that's short-minded. It's not. Modular construction has a place, and in many places it goes very, very – it sells very well because it's, the, it's standardized, and the standard is good. So if the, if the company that's building it is good – and their standards are good, you got a good product, then it should sell. And the answer is, can you get less than if you get a, a, a builder on site? Absolutely. Oh, and also, they're going to deliver on time. You know, there are big advantages. Yeah. Because they do this on a, on a constant basis rather than the, the, get a builder who, who shows up when, he, when he's ready. Oh, absolutely. We go from 25 weeks down to, down to six weeks. Great. Yeah, it's a huge that's difference. A that's, that's less time you have to carry the property or carry the mortgage or carry the taxes. Exactly. Absolutely. Great. That's the way to go. All right. Terrific. Thank you, George. You're welcome. All right. Next month, uh, June the 20th, and an email will be going out to everyone. Thank you again so much, George. Thanks for the wisdom. Okay. We'll talk to you again next month. Cheers. Okay. Bye now. Bye now. There's another monthly edition of the George Ross Mastermind. If you've got a question for George, just send an email to askgeorge at realestateguysradio.com. Make sure you get your questions in at least two days before the next mastermind. Successful syndicating.